The scripture reading for today's sermon comes from Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihaharath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going out before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen, of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. 
But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of Egypt of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Well, have you ever witnessed something so awe-inspiring, so profound, that you were never the same? Maybe a natural wonder like the Grand Canyon or the Alps. Maybe an event like a concert or a sports event. Maybe a conference you attended or a movie you watched. And today, those things remain embedded in your memory because they've shaped your life. Well, the Israelites had many of those awe-inspiring moments of which we've studied over the past few months. But this morning, we come to one particular moment that will stick with them, that will give them both fear of and trust in God. So if you've been with us or you're just joining us this morning, we've been taking much of the past five months to study our way through the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. This book was written likely by Moses to recount the history of God's people, Israel, departing slavery in Egypt in roughly the 15th century B.C. And we've seen the exodus of Egypt. Last week we saw God leading Israel in a cloud and fire into the wilderness away from slavery. But today in the passage Andrew has just read for us, we'll see two things. First, God's glory in salvation. And second, God's glory in judgment. So first, God's glory in salvation. Look in verse 1 of Exodus 14. God, or as we've been saying, Yahweh, his personal name, translated from Hebrew into your English text as Lord, all caps, Yahweh, is leading his people away from Egypt. But look at how he directs them. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Again, like we saw last week, it seems like God's leading just isn't the best. I mean, Yahweh tells his people to retreat And even more than that, put themselves in this very precarious position. It also seems that this retreating and turning around is what gives Pharaoh the idea of, huh, maybe this isn't too late. Maybe I can recover my slave force. Maybe I will give it one more shot. See, on the face of it, Israel is not smart here. What is Yahweh doing? Tim Chester says, Israel appears to be caught in a trap, and it's a trap of the Lord's making. God's doing this on purpose. Why? Look at verse 4. He says to Moses, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. See, once again, God is sovereignly orchestrating events to bring himself glory. And the first way we see this glory revealed is in his salvation of his people. Look there in verse 10. 
Pharaoh has rallied his troops and they've set out to find Israel to recapture them. And here they come upon Israel in front of the sea and they sort of hem them in. It says though that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. You can imagine the feeling. No escape. Helms deep. They're like those cowboys in those old westerns caught in the canyon with the posse following them. Nowhere to go. Between a rock and a hard place. And God has led them there. Pharaoh has pursued them there. It's their worst nightmare, folks. They've just escaped. They've just gotten out of slavery. And now this dreaded former ruler and his many chariots are chasing after them. I mean, just imagine the acoustics of this. Hear the the thunderous chariots and the galloping steeds. See, See the forces of Pharaoh lined up against Yahweh and his people and feel the fear of Israel. There in verse 10, they just cry out to God. But that doesn't last long. In verse 11, they begin to act in what will be just a common practice for them. Complaining. Blaming Moses. Egypt was full of pyramids, as one commentator points out. You know what pyramids are used for? Graves. So it's especially ironic that they say, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Moses, we told you. Good job. Now we're all going to die. Church family, notice here not only the seemingly legitimate reason of Israel's fear, but also the underlying sin in their fear. Their fear is ultimately unbelief. They've ceased to believe that Yahweh, the one who had carried out all those devastating strikes on Egypt before, is the same Yahweh that has led them to this point. They disbelieve he now has the power to save. Remember what Paige read for us at the beginning of the service from Psalm 106. The psalmist says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea. See, this isn't just rational concern. This fear is rebellion against Yahweh. It's the forgetting of what he's done. Church, our fear is often just like that, stemming from unbelief. Of course, there is such a thing as godly concern, even godly fear, but all too often our fear is rooted in distrust of God. So think about it. We we fear for our financial security because we don't believe God will provide. We fear for our children's futures because we don't believe God's a better, more loving parent than we are. We fear for our faith because we forget that it's the object of our faith and not merely the strength of our faith that saves us. Brothers and sisters, what are you fearing this morning? Face your fear. Write it down if you need to. And then bring God's attributes and character and power and very nature to bear on that fear. 
Don't just listen to your fear. Instruct your fear. Teach it by the truth of the Bible. So Israel is fearful. They're alarmed, to say the least. They've come to their Waterloo. And what does Moses say to them in verse 13? These are wonderful verses. He says, fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Some of the most powerful words in all of Exodus. And Moses is standing here before God's frenzied people, and he tells them not to pick up their arms and fight, not to flee, not to scatter, not even to pray. He tells them merely to stop talking and watch. They're about to see something they're never going to forget. Because God will fight. God will act. And church, this is a reminder for us that God's salvation from sin and from our deserving of all his wrath is completely his work. He does all of it. He sent his son. He planned for our salvation. And all of that was for his glory. You and I stand and watch. God's salvation is unilateral. He doesn't need a coalition force. He fights. We shut up. Oh, how we would love to be able to donate to the war effort, right? Somehow contribute something to our salvation. That's not how it works. The first thing we actually do to receive salvation is to realize that we can't do anything to merit it. The first thing we must do is humble ourselves and confess we don't deserve it and we'll never earn it. Christian, there's no room for pride when you're saved by God like this. If your pride is offended by the gospel, then you're finally beginning to understand it. And in the end, because it's all Yahweh's work, Yahweh gets all the glory. That's what he's after. T. Desmond Alexander, in his commentary on Exodus, says, Israel's salvation will come from Yahweh, who without assistance will overthrow the Egyptian army, ensuring that the glory for the victory will be God's alone. There in verse 15, God instructs Moses what to do. Verse 19, the pillar of cloud and fire that we saw last week that represents God's presence with his people moves from going before Israel to going behind them. In the darkness of night, it, it forms a barrier between God's people and Pharaoh's chariots. And there in verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand with his staff. Not a magic wand, remember. This is a symbol of God's authority with him. And God uses wind to drive back the sea. Gradually, the sea is divided and the waters become like walls on either side with inexplicably dry ground where the water had been. The creator God who back in Genesis 1 had separated the waters above the earth from the waters below the earth now again divides the sea by his divine power and Israel watches. In Hebrews 11 we see they have faith in Yahweh and cross the sea by faith. 
what had seemed like the death of them, this insurmountable sea, becomes their way of salvation. And, and as you picture this in your mind, try not to think Prince of Egypt. You know, try not to think Moana, you know, where she like goes into the water and there's dancing fish all around her. This is life and death. God's leading his people through impenetrable waters to new life away from certain destruction. God has gotten glory through his salvation of his people. You continue reading on in Psalm 106, and you'll see that the psalmist says, God saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. And that's exactly what he does in Exodus 14.31, that last verse. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Just like those disciples with Jesus in the boat, the Israelites' fear changes from their circumstances, from Egypt and Pharaoh into an all-out fear of, of God, of the real king, of the real force of nature, of the real ruler, of the real monarch. Pharaoh never has had a chance, and they're beginning to realize that again, because Yahweh reigns. And the seas even obey his voice. He deserves all their fear, all their worship, all their trust. God's glory is shown in the salvation of his people. But that's not the whole story. Let's move on and consider God's glory and judgment. See, God's not only after getting glory for himself from Israel. He's after getting glory from Egypt as well. Again, look at verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God's planning this event also to bring final judgment on his people's enemies. The plagues weren't the end. Pharaoh still rejects Yahweh's command, still is pursuing his people, still is not letting them leave. But he's forgotten that God is powerful and that God has a plan that he's going to get glory by judging Pharaoh. In verses 5 through 9, we see this daunting strength of Pharaoh's force. We see yet again and again in those verses kind of like Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. That's meant to show just the, the formidable, formid, uh, like crazy strong power that he's coming. Formidable, that's the word I was looking for. It was formidable. 600 chariots. And there in verse 23, after the pillar of cloud and fire lifts, the Israelites just pursue Israel fiercely into the midst of the sea, and God hardens their hearts and the hearts of, God, of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's people in order to get glory over them. Again, that doesn't mean he's working against Pharaoh's will, per se. Pharaoh genuinely wants to resist God, but Indisputably, above all of this, God is executing a sovereign plan of getting glory for himself through judgment. Tony Merida writes, Pharaoh thought he had a good military strategy. But what he was actually doing was fulfilling the purposes of God and bringing him glory. There in verse 24, we come to the last watch of the night. 
So Israel has been making their way through the Red Sea overnight. Now Egypt, in the last watch of the night, has started to follow them, and the Lord throws the Egyptian forces into chaos. Their wheels stop working. You don't know exactly what that word means there, but could have been he just removed their wheels, he clogged them up, they ceased to work. Basically, they just can't go on. They're stuck. And it's crazy to see that the Egyptians know exactly what's going on. Look there in verse 25. Let's flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them. They're saying, this is, the, this is Yahweh's doing. He's getting glory again through our judgment. He indeed is the Lord. And as dawn emerges on the horizon, God tells Moses to stretch out his hand again and cause those waters to flow back onto their normal course It's interesting that Yahweh waits until daylight appears because Israel can see and they watch the devastating judgment of their enemies. The Egyptians are thrown into the sea and swallowed up. Their chariots and horses probably smashed by impact. And they die under God's righteous judgment. Verse 30 is incredibly descriptive, isn't it? The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. It's a sobering thought. I'm sure it was a sobering sight. Because you think about it, only a few hours before, the Israelites had imagined they would be the ones dead on the shore. But Yahweh has intervened, and Egypt has been destroyed. Pharaoh had one last time tried to threaten Yahweh's rule and overthrow his plan of deliverance, but God had had the last laugh again. God gets glory in this chapter, both in the salvation of his people and in the judgment of his enemies. So I wonder what you think about this God. It's clear that this is all his doing. And it's clear that... It's all been done for his glory, but it's not clear whether we all have a category for a God like this, a God who is zealous to get himself glory both by saving and judging people. So what do you think? Does he seem egomaniacal, evil, self-centered? Church, the first thing we should understand about God is that he's ultimately after his own glory. He's passionate about it. And the fact that he is primarily, ultimately, supremely interested in his own glory is incredibly, essentially good and right. Because if God is God, and he alone is this perfect, excellent ruler and creator, then it's only right and good for him to delight most fully in himself. Otherwise, wouldn't we be making God into an idolater like us? If God didn't go after his glory and delight most fully in himself, he would no longer be good and he would no longer be God. But he is out for his glory. And that's, friends, that's why he's created us. He loves us. There's no question. He's not just using us. But the reason he made us was so we could get in on this. Get in on finding our greatest joy and glorifying him. It's the greatest joy in the universe, and he wants us to share in it. That's why he's made us. 
He's made us for him. Are you ashamed of that God? Then you don't understand his nature and his perfection. Are you ashamed of that God? Then you don't understand your nature and your sin. Because in your sin, you've determined that that kind of joy and glorifying God isn't enough for you. It won't cut it. Instead, you're going to be the God of your own kingdom, and you will decide how you get joy. And that, friends, is tantamount to treason against the ruler of the world. It's the essence of evil. And God, who knows that the greatest joy you'll ever know is found in him, hands you over to those lesser joys. One of God's most devastating judgments is letting us have what we want. So Christian, do you have a category for this God? For this God that's just after his glory? Or is God your taxi driver getting you to where you really want to go? Is he your destination? Is his glory your goal? Friends, God will not make sense to you until you understand his utter passion for his glory. I'm sure many of you know what John Piper has famously said when he says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Our joy and his glory are not mutually exclusive. They meet in God alone. And yet, friends, we don't stop at God using judgment to get glory. He doesn't stop there. No, he's determined to save us. When we were lost in our rebellion, he sent his son to take on our flesh and our weakness and be tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember what Peter Kay read for us earlier from the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Jesus was God in the flesh, and just like God had caused that red sea to roll back, so too Jesus rebuked the Sea of Galilee and caused it to do whatever he wished. And remember, he didn't need a staff. He had just woken up. God's authority was inherently his, for he was God. And yet, and yet that same hand that held that authority over the sea was nailed to a cross. Jesus took the judgment of God to bring salvation for sinners. Do you see judgment and salvation coming together in Christ? In fact, the path of God's salvation for us, church, comes through the valley of judgment. That's the only way. Because our sin deserved judgment. And so for salvation to be possible, someone needed to undergo judgment for us. And so Jesus willingly, sacrificially, lovingly agreed to go through the waters of God's judgment for us. Jesus was cast up on the shore, dead under the wrath of God. Jesus was swallowed up by the waves in his death. Jesus was judged by God to bring us life. And Jesus did it for our joy and God's glory. All God's wrath for our sin came cascading down on the Son of God. And for Jesus, there was no deliverance. 
but in his death we have life. And death couldn't hold him like it held the Egyptians. He rose again to show that his death had accomplished our salvation. See, through God's judgment of his son, we have salvation. So church family, see the incredible passion God has for his own glory and see how that passion for his glory drove him and gave him the desire to send his son to save us, to give himself for us. You see this incredibly fierce, holy, glorious God giving himself to us in Christ. And do you fear him? Do you trust him? As C.S. Lewis famously wrote about Aslan, the picture of Jesus in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, he isn't safe, but he's good. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, what are you going to do about your sin? Someone or something needs to bear the judgment for what you've done wrong. Who will it be? One author puts it like this. There are two ways God can be glorified in someone's life. In his just judgment of that person or in his saving mercy of that person. Which way will you glorify him? Friend, I urge you to do the latter. Turn to Christ. Embrace his mercy and have your sin placed on Jesus. And family, as we see this picture of Israel's salvation by the sea, we just must reflect on what Jesus did for us. How he went through the waters of judgment for us. You know, often when we think about baptism by immersion here at Loudon Valley Baptist Church, we think about that, that water as sort of symbolizing being cleansed from sin, right? Washing us clean. And that's true. But one of the things that we forget is that the picture of baptism is a picture into judgment. When we pass that person into the waters of judgment and bring them up alive, we picture how Jesus before us went ahead of us and went through those waters of judgment to bring us life. And ultimately at the cross, we see God's glory in judgment and his glory in salvation brought together and fully reconciled. In his grace, Yahweh levels all his righteous wrath against sin on Jesus and gives us salvation. Church, our salvation comes through judgment, but it's not ours. What a joy. And what an urgent message to share with the lost world around us before Jesus does come back as judge. I just love how I, I end up finishing a lot of these Exodus sermons with Tim Chester quotes, but he just does it the best. And he says about this, Imagine the walls of water collapsing in on one another, with people and horses being tossed about and dragged down into the depths to drown. That is what Jesus stepped into at the cross. Jesus plunged into the chaos of the waters of judgment so that we can walk through on dry ground. Imagine the people of God standing, safe on shore, watching God's judgment unfold before their eyes. This is what we are doing 
as we watch with the eyes of faith God's Son hanging on the cross. Through judgment and salvation, we have passed from death to life. Just like those Israelites passed through the Red Sea, so you and I, if we are in Christ, have passed through judgment to life. That's what Jesus says in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Church, this chapter is all about the gospel. And so what else can we do but sing? Sing of this Savior who took the blame and bore the wrath and bore those waves of judgment on him so we can stand forgiven at the cross. But before we sing, let's pray. Lord, you are a God of fierce holiness and incredible compassion. And we thank you for bringing your wrath and your grace together perfectly at the cross. For sending your son to bear our judgment in our place. Lord, we do pray for any here who have not yet placed their trust in you. You would work in their hearts to draw them to yourself. And we pray for those of us who are in Christ who have been brought through the waters of judgment to new life. Lord, would you continue to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ, that we would then sacrificially, willingly, and lovingly lay down our lives for others, knowing that that investment produces so much reward when you return. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.